So here's the thing about today's guest. You really can't prepare to interview him. Doing so is a fool's errand. This is a man who relishes the chance to switch gears, to pivot from one topic to another, to probe and provoke, to respectfully engage in healthy debate, but laugh and smile while doing so. No wonder he has his own podcast. For him, it's not the decision you make, but how you arrived at it. So yeah, he's kept me on my toes since the day we met. This is the fabric of our relationship. And I knew exactly what I was walking into when I asked him to join this show. Our conversation did not disappoint. So welcome to my friendship with Lance Newhauser. This is Back by Popular Demand. I have a glass that has a beautiful circular ice cube in it, but I have two bottles sitting in front of me and I have not yet made the choice because I actually feel that if I chose one, you'd be like, that's a great selection. If you chose the other, I think you might, uh, you might be disappointed. I'm very excited about the two choices. I can't wait to see what they are. First of all, I just, um, and welcome Lance. It's great to see you. This is the seal that I literally just took off of a, a bottle of Knob Creek 12-year that uh, good friend Todd Seahorn, who you know, um, acquired for me a couple weeks ago. And he called me one day. He's like, I'm on my way to a package store somewhere out in the middle of Virginia. And he's like, "That I have a lead on two bottles of Knob Creek 12-year. Do you want one of those bottles? And I said, absolutely. One Venmo exchange later, the bottle was in my possession a couple of days later. So what are your options, Lance? What do you got? I want to know why that was even a question and why it wasn't just given to you and said, this is how much you owe me because that's an obvious, obvious yes. So the one that you would probably be more expecting is the uh, uh, newly popped bottle of Barrel Craft Spirits Bourbon Cask Strength 15-year bottle number 2965 to be precise. Very nice. Or what I typically drink during the summertime is tequila. And this is a bottle of Dos Artes Extra Anejo. And those of you at home cannot see, but Dennis can see that this is a beautiful bottle. But I felt like if I did not come on and drink bourbon with you, you would be disappointed and judge me. No, I won't be disappointed with you, honestly. If, if, if tequila is going to make you happy right now, I'll do it. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful bottle, I have to say. Dennis, it's not, it's not an unfair question from me. We have a tendency to truly, truly enjoy a lot of the same joys of life. Yep. And, yet, and yet, somehow, despite our shared admiration, we end up debating about the same things that we both actually love. And I think part of it is because um, you do them improperly. And I think part of the reason is because you believe I do those things improperly. And there are certain etiquette and etiquette rules that need to be applied to just about every one of those joys of life. I, I totally agree. So this, this is a perfect segue to my first question, which is why do I get the feeling that I am a guest on my own podcast tonight, Lance? Because that's how I feel tonight. Part of the reason is because uh, you and I never had the chance to have you as a guest on my podcast. I believe you were at at some points of that at fault. I was obviously at some points of, of that time. <laughs> but I'm going to hold your faults over you. 
And therefore, you should have been on my podcast first. You know that. You have the guilt attached to that, which is why you're coming in saying, I probably should answer some questions and answer for myself. So we've decided that there will be no ground rules to this conversation. I guess that is the ground rule, is that there are no ground rules. So this is a free-form, freestyle conversation, which is, I know what you, you get, gets you excited and uh, you know, gets me a little bit terrified because I know what I'm dealing with with Lance Newhouser. Look, let, let's, let's also say this. I do acknowledge this is absolutely your podcast, but I, I'm not going to let you just uh, you know, spar by having a hitting partner. right? I'm not going to just stand there and, and take the punches. You're, you're going to get punched back. That's just what's, that's what's going to happen tonight. That's what's yep. going to happen. But I hope we break new ground. That, that, was, my, that was my goal here. Uh, was to break new ground. And so um, because you haven't really officially uh, asked a first question, I'm going to take the opportunity and I'm going to ask you a first question. Wow. You got the first serve. Let's go. Let's go. You have um, now lived in a, a number of locations. Um, yep. And that's one thing that I absolutely uh, adore and admire uh, uh, about you is that I have now seen you in a, in a number of these different places. And each time you are yourself, you are who you are. You're able to change circumstances, change environments, still be you, still take the benefits of those environments. Um, but you just create then a new blend. You create a blend of who I am with the circumstances that I'm in. And now we get new experiences, new ways to evolve. So my question, do you find ways to tether yourself to those new locations or do you feel more comfortable as tumbleweed, not being tethered and being able to move to another new location without uh, too much difficulty? Am I tethered or tumbleweed? I am definitely not tumbleweed, although I recognize I have moved a few times. I view my moves, Lance, as distinct and I guess probably necessary chapters of my career and my personal life. So like, look, New York, I was young, carefree, broke, filled with optimism, sort of knew what I wanted to do, um, worked on the agency side, as you know, and then was given the opportunity to run HBO at PhD where you and I met and we're going to get into that. Something I felt like I had to do and I got a serious taste of client exposure and I knew that's where I belonged. So then getting that client opportunity and moving to Atlanta, you know, um, seeing the inner workings and confirming what I guess I had suspected that I belonged, um, got comfortable, maybe a little bit too much. So gained some weight, um, never really felt Atlanta was considered home to me, although I was extremely comfortable there. I lived there seven years and certainly felt tethered and, but I knew I still had another level. I guess I had, uh, what I would say, like another itch that needed to be scratched. And that led to Washington, D.C. and National Geographic, a larger role, a bigger opportunity. Really felt like I was in full command at that moment, even if it was really hard to leave my friends in Atlanta. That was a hard decision. It was a definitely a, a hard decision. I sometimes wonder if I made the right one, um, only that my time at Geo wasn't as long as I wanted, but I was tested and I felt like I passed the test. And I guess that's what's brought me to L.A. You know, I certainly saw enough tumbleweed as I drove out here. I guess right now, given the changes I've been through and, and the changes we've all seen in this industry over the last year or so, I guess this is as close to tumbleweed as I have ever felt. 
That's what I'll say. Uh, I think we're gonna dig. We're gonna dig into some of those parts. We don't have to do it right off the bat, but there there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, specifically, one of the threads that I, I plan on pulling on um, is whether you enjoy the fact that your career has taken you to different places, or you feel compelled to creating a career so much so, so that you're willing to move to new locations. But before before we get there. I love um, that question, by the way, and I can't wait to get into that. But go ahead. All right, good. good. Then I, I'm going to try and break your concentration to see if you come back to the same answer that you would have had right off the bat. Uh, I have to ask you, um, an, I think, a newly, newly crafted deserted island question. Um, so you're on this... You're on this deserted island, and you've been there a long time. Yep. And you haven't had the standard amenities that a Kamlik lifestyle provides. And you are, you are parched. You are tired. You are wanting off this island. But there, in the distance, you see something glisten. You see the sun reflect down off of this beautiful, angular piece of glass and you go running over and it's partially covered with sand and you start to brush it away and you're starting to see beautiful amber colored liquid in this perfectly crafted glass bottle and you're hoping and praying that as you brush away the next handful of sand the label will say Blanton's Come on. No, I disagree with you. I don't. I, I knew you would disagree. Well, you always disagree with me, but I, well, first of all, you're full of shit because you bought me a bottle of Blanton's once on one of our annual uh, whiskey bets that we have, which we are going to get into in, a, in another section. So I do have it earmarked. So you've gotten me many bottles of bourbon through the years. And I remember one year you got me, this was like maybe five years ago, you got me a bottle of Blanton's, which was a special reserve. It was a green label. I'm not sure if you remember this, but. So the fact that you chose Blanton's for me, so then now you're calling out. I, I'm not calling out Blanton's. I'm not calling out Blanton's. Blanton's is a wonder, wonderful bourbon. I've got, I'm staring at a bottle in the distance. The issue is you've been on a deserted island. You get one bottle and one bottle only, and you go right back to your staple. This is one of the yep. differences between you and me. This is why I said at the beginning I don't believe you do some of life's joys the right way. Bourbon is a life joy. Blanton's <laughs> is a life joy. I agree with you. I agree with you. Except you get one bottle of bourbon and you're not going for something special, something elite. You want to go back to the basic. I admire that in you. I do, but that's just not the right way to do it. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, listen, I could have given you the canned answer. I could have gone pappy and I could have given you like a pappy 20 or something like that. And, you know, it's just... Whatever. Like, you know what? I, I'm going to I'm going yeah. to my here's what I will say. If I'm on the island by myself, I'm, I want my comforts. I want something that's going to make me happy. Blanton's makes me happy. And you know what? I don't need some highfalutin whiskey when I'm on my when I'm on my island. I just want something that makes me happy. And Blanton's makes me happy. And I'll tell you, you just made me think of something. So I turned 50 this year, Lance, as you know, a couple months ago. My, so everybody's like, oh, what are you going to do for your 50th birthday, right? My girlfriend's asked me that. Family's asked me that. What are you going to do for 50? And right now, I haven't done anything yet, mainly because of COVID. So my plan was is to do the bourbon trail um, you know, in Kentucky. And, and what I, my vision was is to have a lot of my close friends join me 
for several days, a couple of days, probably just a couple, um, in, in, in the bourbon trail, we'd rent a van and we have someone take us around from one distillery to the next. Have not been able to do that yet, mainly because I, have, I was worried that a lot of the, the distilleries wouldn't even be open. And I know that people wouldn't want to travel and there's concerns and there's masks and I don't want to wear a mask when I'm drinking bourbon. I just don't want nothing to do with that. So I'm waiting. So right now the plan is the bourbon trail is going to happen. It's either going to happen in fourth quarter of 21 or first quarter of 22. So it's not that far away. But you do realize that you're going to be on that trip, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I better be. I better be. Um, that's uh, see, that's the same. That's the same as we've already discussed. It's not a question of whether you want the bottle or not. It's just tell me how much I owe you. Same situation here. It's not that I. Just tell me what the dates are. That's how that's supposed to go. Just tell me the dates. So basically, I need to just stop questioning and just make the decision and go right into it. And that's what that's what you want to get from me today. I've been trying to get that from you for over a decade at this point. Now that I've already disappointed you and disappointed my my listeners with my answer on the desert island question, so I don't, I don't even know where we go from here. Hold on, I have to comment. I made a brief comment before. The justification you provided around the need for comforts because... That's all you need. You need to feel comfortable in your own skin is the exact reason why you're able to travel from place to place and become yourself wherever you're at. Have you always had that level of clarity and profession? Meaning, have you always known the type of work you've wanted to do? Or have there been periods in your career where you were unsure of the type of, of professional delight you were seeking? Lance, I've told people this many times over. I knew sophomore year in college that I wanted to work in this field. And I, I can't explain it. I don't know why. But um, when I started writing movie reviews for the school paper, it, it just sort of like I was a journalism major. I was starting advertising. I knew I liked film. I liked entertainment. But I never thought I'd be able to do it for a career. And then when my eyes were opened with those opportunities and I had internships at Fox and Paramount, all of a sudden I was like, geez, this is this is what I've been waiting for. Like this was, it was literally like the heavens opened and it was just this moment of clarity. And I knew from that point forward, sophomore year in college, this was what I was going to do. Um, I didn't know specifically that I was going to work in marketing necessarily, but I knew that it was going to be something in the advertising PR field and entertainment. You know, there's, um, and we were in the same industry, obviously we talked about that, that we, that's how we met. Um, one of the things that we shared early was that I also at that time had some very real clarity in the fact that the work I was doing was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Yep. And you described your profession to me as a calling, as a calling, more than certainly more than a job, even, but more than a career. Um, and even more than a lifestyle, something that you were possessed to do. And, and I think one of the things that bonded us early was the fact that we both treated our work with that type of passion, that type of drive, which to, it used to exist in this industry. It used to flourish in the, this industry. Yep. I, I mean, Madman was not... Um, really exaggerated from a sense that the ad world was desirable. It was, it was sleek. It was creative. 
it was admired. And over time, uh, as a lot of the jobs became very um, math, more mathematical and uh, data and tech driven, yep. which has its own passion and, and what have you, it became more folks being passionate about that than about the the sizzle of the advertising world in totality. And to meet someone else that was motivated by those, the similar desires that I had uh, was, was refreshing. And I would love to see that type of passion come back to this industry in numbers, but I, I fear that it may not. Are you, are you more optimistic about this industry and its ability to excite the professionals that work in it? Or do you think you are <laughs> like you are in a number of life ways, a, a rare breed? I think I'm a rare breed. And it took me about two seconds to answer that. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I wish uh, the answer was otherwise and that um, that creativity and that passion was still there. And, and again, obviously it's there in pockets, but I don't, I don't see it um, as much as I used to. And uh, you know, you reminded me of when I first met you. So you and I met, just for our listeners, you and I met at PhD, New York. Um, I want to say it was around 2008, 2009. Now, Lance, I was only there for like a cup of coffee. <laughs> I wasn't there long. I was at PhD for about 15 months. and I was running yeah. the HBO business. Um, but I remember specifically, my office was at the back of the, the floor, way, way back. Um, I don't even think my office had AC. And I remember this tall guy walking around. And and he was walking around with either a tennis ball or a racquetball. You'll have to no tennis ball, tennis. And you were like, this guy was like walking along. He's carefree. He's got a smile on his face. He's walking with a, a sense of confidence, a little bit of like just felt really comfortable in his own skin, which you are. And he's bouncing this ball. And I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> like I I I, I, did, I mean. I, you had just started. I'm like, I, I heard the name Lance, but I wasn't, I don't think I had met you yet. I'm like, I think that's the guy that's now running digital. Um, he came from uh, resolution, right? I think that's where he came. Correct. And I, I was like, I got to get to know this guy pretty quickly. And, and circumstances forced us to get to know each other pretty fast. Cause I think there, were, there was a digital pitch for HBO that we were, we were trying to get the business away from deep focus if memory serves. And, and we were victorious in that. But uh, do you remember like that moment? Like when you and I met, it was like right around that time of that pitch, right? It was the first act of business that I was put on in my role at PhD. And so the first person that I had to work closely with was you. And it was that digital pitch for the HBO business. The opportunity was absolutely drummed up by, uh, uh, I believe it was a combination of you and Scott Hagedorn. Yep. And we were long shots to win the digital business, long shots, because Deep Focus was a phenomenal uh, agency at that point uh, with great talent. And there was, you know, a pitch that was sold in that said you should work in an integrated fashion. You are a digital oriented organization in HBO. Your content is moving way more online. And keep in mind, this was like 2011. So these concepts were fresh. And on the other side of HBO, we're really forward-thinking, intelligent business and media and advertising people, uh, and we won the business. And here it was coming in 
as the the new folks and just hitting a home run on our first at bat as a first time playing team. And uh, it cemented the relationship at that point. We already, we already knew we knew how to win together. Yep, Right. We did. It's like, just, just keep putting us together. So whenever I just wanted to riff and, and get some stress off my chest, I'd go bounce the ball all the way to your office. I just park myself in, in your office and we'd talk just like this about Topics like sports and uh, alcohol and movies and traveling. And from there, we would inevitably end up talking about business and walking away with a good idea. We just needed space to let the creativity flow. And it's that type of magic that does exist in business and in advertising that I wish more people were passionate about. But maybe if so many people were that passionate about it, we wouldn't have seen it as so special and maybe not have connected the way we did. It's funny. It was like, it was such a bittersweet year for me because I, like I said, I was there for just a little while. Right. And I kind of put it like the, like a baseball player. When I was at PhD, I felt like I, I went three for four with two doubles, um, you know, a couple RBIs and two runs scored. Right. And I just like, I had a great, it was a great night. And I remember having like a great relationship with Chris Patticini, who ended up becoming chief marketing officer at HBO many years later, who I still stay in touch with. And I felt like he and I had this connection where I knew that the relationship was going to a place where I was his agency guy and he was my client, but I knew that we were going to become friends outside of work. I just had this feeling about it. And I felt that way with you too, that like, cause I could, I could just tell by, based on comments you made about the Cohen brothers and Wes Anderson that I knew, I knew, and Wes Anderson's going to come up again in a little bit. I knew that you and I, we had something. And then all of a sudden I got the call from Turner to go to Atlanta and I ha- wasn't even looking like it had, my resume wasn't done or anything like that. And my biggest fear was like, I said this to Chris too. Like, I'm in a Chris, I felt like I'm, you know, I'm leaving a potential friendship here. And like, I, I feel bad that I'm moving to Atlanta. And I felt the same way about you. I was like, man, I'm leaving Lance right when like things are getting interesting. We won this, won this business. I know we'd be working together, but like I had to follow my gut. I had to follow my heart. And I knew that Turner was the right call. So when I left you, when I left PhD, I, I really worried that like, I'm not sure if I'll ever see Lance again. But I was foolish to think that because the media industry kept us together many times over. But also, and you know what it really was that kept us in touch with each other was fantasy football. Oh, boy. We're, we're, are we, so first off, foolish game played by predominantly foolish men uh, that I absolutely play and don't know how to stop. And, and my issue with this, because we're going to take we're going to go back to that, that um, uh, you going to Atlanta, because there's a story that I, I have told you once before, but I don't, I don't think it, it, let me tell you this, it, it, it wasn't even as meaningful as it is today. So we're going to get back to it. But I realized something about fantasy. <laughs> it, fantasy provides for me two benefits. And two benefits only. There's One, not many benefits. I believe no, it's only two. It can't I'm, be any more. I'm going to challenge you to come up with a third. For me, it, it, it's two benefits and two benefits only. One is it does scratch some kind of competitive itch. Okay. Yep. And two, it does give me a reason to keep in touch with some folks that I probably otherwise would not. Totally agree. And, and those are lovely things. Now, one can certainly make the argument that says, uh, uh, there are other more fruitful ways to stay in touch with those people, but we'll leave that aside for now because it, whatever whatever keeps people in contact it doesn't really matter if it's working. Um, 
But the problem with something that has only two benefits is that it makes it it makes it where you have to question whether you should really be dedicating time to this. Right now, time is so limited that we need to benefit stack, right? If something has one benefit, it either has to be like life altering for a family member, et cetera, in order to do it. Otherwise, not enough time to just do something that has one benefit. Something that has three benefits, three benefits, no problem. I'm going to do it. But two, you got you to start questioning those. And every time, every time I make what is supposed to be an educated fantasy decision that nine times out of 10 is the right decision. But that one time comes up and it compounds into not just being the wrong decision, but I only lost by that amount. And if I would have won that week, I would have got the seed in the playoffs or made the playoffs. And now I don't. And, and this, this need to scratch this itch, this competitive itch goes to, I hate this fucking itch. Right. right? Yeah. That first, Benefit starts to melt away whenever that bullshit happens. So it's a silly game played by predominantly silly men. That when when that happens, when you lose that way because of a decision that you made, it's infuriating. And it's it's like <laughs> you actually I've done this before on Sunday nights where I actually go to bed and you know this because I text you every Sunday, super pissed off. Like just <laughs> And, and and the only thing that's worse on a Sunday during fantasy or during football is when your real team loses and your fantasy team loses because then you have nothing, right? You, you can't even get excited about the real-life team that won. They lost, your fantasy team lost, and it's like you just know it's not going to be a good week. No, it's certainly not going to be a restful Sunday night uh, or restful Monday night if it came down to it, and it's not going to be a good beginning of the week. And And that's the problem with this. You're like, why am I letting something – so meaningless, so meaningless, control so much of my psyche, right? And and I think unless you, and there are a lot of us out there, unless you play fantasy the way that we play fantasy, which is you play to win against some of the people you love the most because it's the only time you can show alpha aggression. And when you do not actually come through with those victories. Yep. All else just melts away. I don't care about anything else at that point. I don't. Now, granted, since you know um, life has evolved, it's not as serious as it once was, but it can still get under my skin with that type of uh, intensity. No doubt about it. I'm going to ask you some questions. Um, you're now the president of Media Ocean, and you're the former CEO of Four C Insights, um, a, a well-regarded data insight firm. I did business with you through the years. But we're not going to talk about any of that stuff because I know you don't want to talk about any of that. So we're not going to get into that. Maybe well, we'll, we'll come back to it a, a little bit later. With the exception of one story that has to do with you. Please. That's all I want to get to. But keep going. Here's what I will say about you. I feel like the Lance that I know, that a lot of people know, could have gone in numerous career directions. Um, you still can, of course. And none of that would surprise me whatsoever. So here's I have made a list of some things that I think <laughs> Lance could easily be doing right now or in an alternate life. One is I easily see sports broadcaster or journalist. Um, like maybe you have your own cushy HBO show. You do like six episodes, hopefully get picked up for a second season. So my, uh, my mother has often told me that she thought I was going to go into sports broadcasting. Uh, I used to, uh, I, I did not know that. I never, did not know that. That. uh, in fact, I don't think, anyone except for me and my mother have had those conversations. Um, and 
there were even relatively recently, my young nephew, um, actually two of my nephews, played in the uh, Junior Maccabi Games. So the uh, basically the Jewish Olympics, and they and they played baseball. And me and my mom would take these trips to go watch them play wherever they were playing. And I would sit there and call the game because I'm just sitting there with my mom. There's a few other parents around and it's, it's a captive audience to try out sports comedy on. And so it it became a blast to the point where some of the people who were sitting around us were looking forward to and wanted to participate in calling the game. So, you know, there'd be times I'd be like, you know, it's the, uh, it's the bottom of the fifth inning. And so we've got our, uh, our guest uh, from the bullpen coming up. We have to yep. ask him a few questions, et cetera. And, uh, and we'd have a blast with it, but it, it's the same. It's just fun to talk to other people who enjoy the same passions as you. Of course. And having those conversations are easy. And so getting to do it about something uh, we love as much as, as uh, especially uh, baseball uh, and sports would be a joy, a dream come true. So I want to ask you to channel your um, sportscaster voice, which I know you have, and give me the line that I, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. My favorite line from the Royal Tenenbaums that's sports related. Can you throw that line in your, in your sportscaster voice for us? Oh. And I'll give oh. you the line if you don't know what it is. I, it's, uh, it has to do with him uh, falling apart in the, in the tennis match. I can't. Exactly I'm right. not, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pull it at the moment. Hit me. Hit me with the line. Hit me with the line. I want you to do it first in your in your voice, and then I'll come. I'll come with mine. All right. This is my sportscaster voice. <clears throat> That's seventy-two unforced errors for Richie Tenenbaum. He's playing the worst tennis of his life. I don't. I, I can't top that. That was. That was. That was. <laughs> that was I don't even want to attempt it. In fact, I, if the, you can't even see. I my mouth is hurting because I'm smiling so much. You are I, smiling. I can see it. Um, all right. So, owner of a distillery. No, I like to be more of a patron of that distillery. If I was going to go into something that was um, hospitality oriented, uh, myself and uh, Aaron Goldman, who uh, is the CMO of Media Ocean and was a CMO of 4C and was a CMO of Resolution Media and was my um, roommate after college and was my fraternity brother in college. And this wow. relationship goes back a long, I had no uh, idea of that. Wow. Long, long way. Um, we have talked forever about opening a, uh, uh, bar restaurant, uh, uh, live music venue. And, uh, at the time we called internet radio station, all wrapped in one. Um, and it was a loosely working title, uh, same dream, different day, SD3. Um, if I were to go in the hospitality direction, I wouldn't start the distillery. I would, uh, with Mr. Goldman, start SD3. Got it. Okay. So we'll leave it to the bourbon trail trip that we're all going to go on at the end of this year or early next year, and we'll leave it at that. How about um, expansion market team owner, but not for the NFL, but for the NHL? Can I can I adjust that and sure. say and say that while we were working together, which again was a hot minute, I was only there for eighteen months. You were there for you said fourteen, fifteen months. Um, yep. 
And during that time, I got the opportunity to go to um, the World Cup in South Africa, final match. Wow. Uh, against, um, it was Spain versus Netherlands. And we happened to be traveling with quite a few folks who were from Spain. And so we had a wonderful, uh, wonderful time. But as part of that trip, by the way, I think it was actually Nelson Mandela's final public appearance, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And so it was this uh, kind of uh, infatuation moment in my life with with the experience that I just had. And I I started to become very much in tune with the world of soccer or football. Um, I have. And at that moment, I didn't see it so much as loving the, the sport by itself, but I loved the international connectivity of the sport and what that can do from a business perspective. And so from that moment forward, I have wanted to own a major league soccer team. And had I actually had the capital to do so back then, boy, oh boy, would I be sitting pretty relative to the values at that time. And I was pitching a few people that I knew in my life why it made sense to try and buy a major league soccer franchise right then and there. And it's still something that I would love to do at some point in time. Well, listen, if you ever do it, you know, you've got yourself a marketer that you can bring onto the onto the staff. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I've never done sports marketing as a, as, I mean, I've, I've worked on sports brands as part of my career, but never really in a, you know, full-time capacity. So that's always something I've always thought when I, when I watch games, I, I feel like I would be very good at that, but I've never been given that opportunity. Can you imagine if all of a sudden that, you know, imagine there's a, a world in which every possible scenario exists and we get to walk into that, that specific scenario and we're walking in the stadium and it's a long, long distance between the door you walk in and the door I walk in. Yep. And, all, and all of a sudden we know that we are now working for our franchise, marketing a sports team. And you just you feel that walk. I mean, that's that's a vignette in life that I would love for uh, for it to happen, it would feel movie, movie-esque. Two others, real quick. One is not that exciting, and I don't really want to talk about it. One is politician, which I wouldn't be surprised if that's ever in your future. That I, I could see you doing some good for people down the line. Um, I think the the politics of politics might not be something that you're, you'd be a big fan of, but, um, but I do think uh, you'd be great at it. But sec- the last one is this, and I have a second part to this. I, hold on. I got I got a 30, 30 seconds. Ever since I was 16 years old, I wanted to be a congressman. You never told me that. So this is a complete like, I don't think I don't your, think your ability to hit this on the head is, has been pretty <laughs> un, uncanny. And some of these stories, very few people actually know. Um, so I was 16. I didn't come from a very uh, I didn't come from a wealthy family at all. I think we were um, very much square in the middle. I think times are different then, though. You, you didn't know you didn't have. Right now, you can get access to anything in the world in terms of visually seeing what exists. Back then, I had a bike. My friends had bikes. We rode places. I played baseball. I didn't know I didn't have anything because everything I wanted, I, I had and needed. And it was just yep. in friends and, and, and entertainment and activity. Anyway, uh, my mother writes a letter to our local congressman to try and get some financial aid to help me go to college. 
and we get this we get this letter back. I don't think I've ever told this this story publicly. We get this letter back, and uh, sorry, this is longer than thirty seconds. We get this letter back, and it basically says, "As a congressman, I can't do much, but this I can do." And he he paid for a semester tuition in state at University of Illinois. Okay, and uh, and it made my mother um, cry. Uh, and it was a, a different kind of cry than I had ever experienced with my mom. And I saw ability for someone in a public service position to have that effect on, on someone that they don't know, but are, you know, quote unquote, in the neighborhood together, right? They share a common, a common bond. And from that point on, I, I wanted to do that. And as I got older and learned what politics actually is and more what policymaking actually is in weighing what is good for people against the volume of priorities because of the volume of people you have and, and working through how you help people navigate those waters to arrive at common ground, that element of government, I would love to do, would love to do. And I say this as a complete compliment to you. Like, I, I think you'd be amazing at that. I, I just knowing, knowing you the way I do in terms of the way you, you, you assess things and break down issues into simple ways to understand problems. Um, I think you'd be phenomenal at that. And I, I really do think that that is something that you continue to, to explore. I have a feeling you will. I'm not, I'm not surprised <laughs> by any of that. So I, I think, uh, you know, maybe that's, conversation for another day, but the last job for you, um, and there's a second part to this, is radio disc jockey, but the overnight hours. Oh, And, that, and that's another compliment. I, 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 I'm not sure they would let me on any other hours but the late night hours, and I'm pretty sure those are our people. Those are the people that hit their stride analyzing their day, uh, analyzing their life, uh, analyzing their circumstances and their existence. And every time they reach new ground, they want to hear new music. And every time they hear new music, they reach new ground. And to be able to have that type of conversation with a blind audience, yet you know they're your people, would be absolutely phenomenal. Completely agree. I remember when I was a kid, when I was like 12 or 13, I used to like hanging out in my bedroom, listening to music. I would pretend that I was a DJ. And like my friend would come over and we would like play music, obviously on the cassette player, but like we would always like introduce each song. So like, I think deep down, I always felt like I, I wanted to do that. So a couple months ago, I'm not sure, I, I guarantee you remember this out of the blue. This was, what are we in June? A couple months ago, probably like February, March, you sent me a text out of the blue. And this is what you, <laughs> this is what you said. You said, if I had, if you're talking about me, Dennis, if I had a musical spirit animal, it would be Neil Young. Do you remember sending me this text or were you I like, know. no, of course I do. Yeah. And I just started, I, I read it twice and I started laughing. It was completely out of nowhere. So I, I have to ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's a compliment there because I think Neil Young's the man and he's pretty awesome. So why Neil Young with me? Let's get some of the baselines out of the way, right? <laughs> Which is, uh, Neil Young is a gifted artist um, that is oftentimes 
underappreciated for his artistic ability due to how present his personality is. Yep. And he could be a cranky fucker from time to time, right? Yep. yep. Personality overshadows the ability. Sometimes, except for when you truly begin to learn who he is through his art, you realize that it's it's not that he's cranky. It's that he has limited patience for those that are not putting that same effort into life. You don't like his music? Fine. But don't question whether or not he was putting himself and everything he has into that music. Yep. Because if that gets called into question, then the basis for any forward discussion or common ground becomes very, very difficult to achieve. And so from that respect, was I talking about Neil Young or was I talking about Dennis Kamlick? <laughs> well, knowing knowing you the way I do, you're obviously talking about me. Um, and, that's, and that's the stuff that you do. You send me these... These uh, these compliments that are maybe hidden under something else, like Neil Young, in that example. But I I do understand what you see, what you're saying about me, and and I think you touched on a little bit of this earlier when you asked a question about passion and do I still see that today? Because I think you know enough about me to know that I have that passion. Um, but um, a lot of that creativity and that that drive, I'm not sure I'm seeing as much of that today as I used to, and kind of makes me sad. Um, Who's your musical spirit animal? I mean, I, I'm going to make a guess, but I, I, this is just a guess, but I don't know. Sure. Uh, is it Bill Withers? Oh, no, 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 no. There's no, there's no way I can channel that man. Um, but I know you're a fan. That's why I, oh, I was wondering if it might be him. I'm a fan. I mean, like you see his, his album covers are phenomenal. They, they represent his music so well. You see like a rose and the thinly rolled, beautiful, uh, I wouldn't even call it a cigar, but it's not a cigarette, um, a glass of wine, right? I mean, he just, this guy loved. That's what he did. He just loved. He walked love. He sang love. He embodied love. And while I love love, I am not that spirit. That is not, a, that is not, that is not me. Um, so who do you, th- who do you think it is? If, if, you had, if you had to give me one or two, who is it? I, I will I will rotate because I'm I'm also I'm I can be I can be moody fucker um, I can go from one to the other pretty quickly, um, but there is a common foundation which is just give me some blues rock and I am I am in a good happy place, and the I remember being recently at a concert like I think it must have been three four months before not that recent three four months before COVID. Um, in New York, seeing the Black Keys in their first tour uh, in five years. And I remember showing up looking like I lived in New York, but mainly lower than lower than uh, uh, Houston uh, and very rarely came above that street. Uh, <laughs> 
And I was with a friend of mine, Jack, who looked like he had, he had been born and raised in New York and knew how to listen to music. And we went to this show and I remember being like, Black Keys are me. They are who I feel right now. I feel who they are. And I don't know if they're my, you know, permanent uh, music spirit animal, but certainly at that moment, which is the last real moment I got a chance to experience live music, which is where my my animal lives when it comes to music. Uh, they were the they were the last to represent that. That's funny you reference them because I, I remember um, it was sometime last year on Instagram, I posted um, the album art of that that solo record that Dan Auerbach put out. And I, I forget the name of it, but you know which one I'm talking about. He's sitting on the grass and he's and a phenomenal record. And you were the first person to respond and you wrote back, this was one of my top like five albums of the year last year or whatever year it was. That album uh, was stellar and should absolutely be uh, revisited on regular occasion. What is amazing is how you were able to uh, really, and there's, it sounds like every profession I wanted to go into, right? That's not, that's actually not the case. I think, you know, there's, there's writer uh, and teacher would have been the other two. So there's okay. like, okay, so there's like, you know, I think you mentioned five, so seven total. You only mentioned five and you basically hit all five. It was, it was quite impressive, um, your triangulation. It was uh, I, 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 very good, Dennis. Very good. We're going to take a quick break so we can refill our drinks, and then we're going we're gonna to continue. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by The Waffle Company, the first ever get-and-give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. That just makes me smile. Those who know me will tell you how much I respect animal rescue, and I adore my two boxer rescues, Sammy and Gabby. And trust me when I say that they love their waffle bed. My dog dad stock went up big time when their waffle arrived. Whether I'm watching a favorite movie, a baseball game, or listening to music, one of them is always lounging on their waffle, gnawing away on their favorite shark chew toy. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. The beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. It looks brand new every time I wash it. Look, you love your dogs. I sure love mine. And we'll pretty much do anything in the world for them. So get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night. And that should make you sleep better at night. Order them at waffleco.com. It's spelled just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Again, that's waffleco.com. And as a thank you to listening to this podcast, be sure to use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount on your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the pod. I've spent enough time in this podcast talking about the pandemic. I feel like it's been it's something that's overshadowed almost every single episode, and I guess it sort of makes sense, but... Um, so I don't want to do that again. But this past year, it kind of afforded you and me another opportunity to connect in a different way. And I know you know what I'm about to get into. Um, you referenced fantasy football, right? Which was great. Like it was another way for you and I, not only beyond media, but another way for you and I to stay in touch with each other. But this past year, my brother and I and our buddy Nick Malone, um, we created this, uh, what I would call a, a virtual screenplay reading series 
where we, we, we look at a famous movie script and a bunch of us get together on Zoom and uh, we all take a character and we all read the entire movie for over, over two, two and a half hours. Um, I pulled you in to this because I knew you would like it. Um, and I think the first one we had you do was Reservoir Dogs, if that's correct. Um, correct. And I think you played Mr. Brown. And you've done many of these since then, and we're going to get into a couple of those. But you find it enormously satisfying to the point that we all do. Like, I mean, we all there's this rush that we all seem to have after we're done. And usually what happens after we finish the script, we all kind of sit, sit around for another 20 minutes or so on Zoom and we just start talking. And, and that there's this this catharsis that we all sort of experience about how, how much just how much fun we just had over the last couple of hours, kind of just leaving our problems aside and just taking on a role, one of our favorite movies and just living that character. What is it about these readings that brings such a smile to your face? Cause you, you, you literally are grinning ear to ear whenever we do these. There's, there's a number of answers here on a very uh, surface level answer. I like new experiences. I like doing new things. Um, and especially during COVID, the amount of opportunity to do new things was severely limited. Yep. But it certainly didn't stop there. Um, I have always wanted to have the opportunity to act, not to be an actor uh, as a profession, but always have the opportunity to act because I think that's just a, a again, another way to connect with people yep. um, by channeling um, a scenario channeling, uh, another life or, um, uh, another persona and to also have the opportunity to learn through channeling someone other than yourself, uh, scratches, scratches a, a big itch, uh, as, as well. But it, the way that you and your brother and Nick put this together made it feel like everyone was experiencing those benefits together. And there was this indescribable yet palpable energy amongst those participating that this was unique. This was something special. And it's one of those memories that won't be forgotten. And I'm not dramatizing it like, it was the greatest thing I've ever done. It's pretty great, but you know, but I, I'm saying it's one of those things that forever in my life, I will say during COVID and after, but it started during COVID. Yep. Got a chance to do something incredibly unique and artistic with a group of caring, well-spirited, enjoyable people. And uh, and there wasn't a lot of that to be had during that time and to find that type of connection and happiness and what was not a connected, happy, happy time for a lot of people was pretty special, Dennis. I mean, I've had like we obviously all post different photos and, and some, some sometimes clips of our readings to Facebook and, and whatnot. And I'll, I'll see the occasional you know comment from somebody that says you guys are a bunch of dorks. And it really pisses me off because it's like, first of all, that's just 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 you don't know us. You weren't part of the experience, but like completely wrong, just wrong in every yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. like you, you will, you will text me either during or cert- certainly right after the reading and be like, you know, I can't thank you guys enough for this gift that you have 
you have, right. you have given us this past year, especially during COVID. And I've, I've certainly had a really, really hard 2022. And, um, and you're, you're just always just enormously grateful and, and gracious about um, the opportunity that we give you. So we, we've had you take on a couple of big roles over the last several months. You played, um, most recently, you played Vincent Vega, which is John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction. And you also played um, the Emilio Estevez character, um, Andrew, in The Breakfast Club. Now, I got to say this. So when we did The Breakfast Club, it, it's interesting when we choose these scripts, right? Because you, you need to do... Obviously, you want to do movies that everybody knows. and They need to be great screenplays, but they also need to have really interesting characters and ideally, you know, some sort of balance of, of comedy and, and obviously sometimes drama. But The Breakfast Club is one of those scripts that's got a lot of humor, but also a lot of a lot of serious moments. And you went for it as Emilio Estevez because he has that big speech at the end when they're all sitting around. And he's talking about how, you know what life is like with his father and how he taped that other kid in the locker room and he taped his, his, his buns together, the whole thing. But like you went for it in a way that like, I, I was curious to see how, how you were going to play it. And you were like, I mean, I, I have to say this, a life moment for you <laughs> in some capacity. I, I experienced what it felt like to act. And I, I don't care that it was 12 people or however many people it was. Yep. I wasn't doing it for other people. I wanted to do it with other people, but I wasn't doing it for other people. It was something that I felt compelled to do for a long time. And there are too many of those that we all experience in life, something I wanted to do for a long time, and I just never got to it. And I think you and I, one of the other things we bonded with un- uh, over, unfortunately, over time was loss. Although I think um, oftentimes the benefit of, losses that it brings people together. Um, and, and I just realized now how precious every time it is to experience something that you've always wanted to do and you didn't let it slip by. It's like, you know, moonlight Graham, right. Uh, it's to feel like you came this close to your dreams and then wash them, wash them brush by. Um, is there a part that you are dying to do that we have not obviously done yet. I honestly haven't thought about it in that way, right? I like that you guys are the captains of the ship taking us on a journey. And I like being thrown into the mix to challenge myself in whatever it might be. It, uh, you know, I guess if you're going to resemble the, the field at all, it's not like you get to the first time you do something, walk in and be like, Yo, I want to be De Niro's part in this, or I, I want to be Pacino's part in that, right? Like, give, give me a chance. Put me yeah. in, play in, coach. I, I want to play. Um, and so, no, it, 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 really, it really hasn't, uh, hasn't been thought about in that capacity. You know this about me when I say that I'm more of a writer than I am a performer, right? So I, I think you know what I mean by that. And so for these readings, it's, it's interesting for me because I – sort of stretching myself to do something that I ordinarily would not do. I'm not a big fan of limelight. I'm not a big fan of, of visibility yet. I'm doing a podcast, which makes no sense, but I don't do lead parts. It's not my thing. I tend to take a step back and take on secondary roles. I played the principal in breakfast club, which was a, a good role, yeah. but not, not the lead. And however, so in a couple of weeks we're doing bull Durham. Bull Durham is one of my very favorite movies. It is a top absolutely top 20 movie for me, if not, you know, lower than that. And, 
I was originally going to play the baseball manager, the team manager, the skipper. And then, you know, my brother and Nick were like, you need to play Crash Davis. Like, you need to yeah. play Costner. My nephew, Jack, is going to play Nuke Lelouch. So there's this great opportunity at me as Crash to, to, be, to act and read with my, with my nephew, which is, which is pretty awesome. And I never really thought about that. So I, I'm doing something I normally don't do, which is to take on the lead. But I got to tell you, I'm really excited about it. Like, I, I think I'm going to... I have a feeling I'm going to sort of do what you did with, with Emilio, which is like, I'm just going to hold, I'm, I'm just going to allow myself to just go all in and I'm not going to hold myself back because that's my style. My style is to hold myself back and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be all in and it's going to be pretty awesome. I, so uh, there's so much in there that I, I love. What you said. <laughs> there really is though. But um, the fact that you're throwing yourself all in uh, is a thing of beauty. And I can't, I can't wait to watch that. Too, I think that role you share. I think you share a lot in common with that character. I do, and I, and I think you're gonna you're gonna play that really well. And, and I, I want to go back to the comment uh, that you dropped before um, about this being dorky. Um, I think you know we we're we're relatively close in age, um, and we're definitely from the same era. Um, and I think we grew up in an era where things that were different were not understood and made people feel uncomfortable and people didn't like the feeling of uncomfortability. People with confidence, the willingness to be vulnerable, the willingness to try something new, to fail, to live in the uncomfortability and oftentimes even thrive in it, we're seen as different and therefore misunderstood and oftentimes mislabeled. But I don't think we're living in an era like that anymore. There are people who are still living in that era, but we are not living in that era anymore. And Time will only further show that those who are willing to be vulnerable, those who are willing to move into the uncomfortable circumstances, those who are willing to see others for who they are, will be proven as the, the strong and the leaders. And it's those who were throwing stones that will see that they, had, they were on some of the wrong judgments of life. It's funny, you know, choosing the movies that we do is is not easy because it's sort of stressful because like we we try to do these once a month and there's obviously so many movies that we choose from and we tend to do the classics and we go back in time but we don't do anything modern however over the past year you know during covid we're all stuck in home we're all watching a lot of tv i was watching a lot of i just i channel surf in general but stars the network played Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They played that movie literally 24-7. I mean, I'm not even kidding. It was, it was, it's probably on stars right now. If I put on stars, it's probably on. It was on just a, a continuous loop, and I watched it a lot. Now, I saw that movie. I know, I know you're a QT guy like me. I saw that movie in the theater, I think twice. Um, and then so, so it's been on a lot. So I ended up watching it a great amount. So what I would say is this. First of all, we definitely need to read that script because that script is phenomenal. Without, without a doubt. 
it checks all the boxes. Great, great characters. It's amazing that dialogue. It's just there's great parts across the board for a lot of our readers. So we we have to do it. Probably not going to do it right away, but certainly one that I think we need to move up the list. But here's what I'll throw to you. That movie, and again, I realize it only came out a couple years ago. That movie is absolutely one of Tarantino's best films. But, so much so. Hold on. I'll pause. Don't just say one of the best. There's a finite number of films. If you're if you're about if you're going to make a bold claim, then make the bold claim. Put rank it. Where where does it sit? That's what I was about to do. I was going to say that I I feel good when I say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is clearly one of Quentin's top five films. Oh, that's not that bold. I thought I thought you were going to go higher than that. I thought. You were oh, going to go so all right. So I let you down. I don't. I don't. I I can't say right now that it's in my top three yet. I, I I'm not sure. Like I have is it, it. Is it four, or is it five? Because four 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 is a little bit. Because you're going to okay. display I'm, something. I'm, people are going to yell at you if it's four. At five, eh, you you start to get into the middle of the pack. Okay. Well, I want to know what your list is. I'm looking at my list. I'm looking at my top five. I have it written down. Right now, Hollywood is at number four. Oh, nice. All right. So, so what's the five? Well, of course. So number one, I have to go. And I think you know this about me. Inglorious Bastards is number one for me. That movie is a masterpiece. And I, there's nothing he's done that's better than that film. So and I'll, let me give you the rest of them. And you can Please. shoot holes, as I know you will. Number two, I got to go Reservoir Dogs because it's, it's his first film. And I just think the, the movie was raw and, 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 and just efficient and, and just muscular and just on all the right ways. Um, I've got Pulp Fiction, number three. I've got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as number four. And five is where I get a little bit of a struggle. I'm debating um, Kill Bill Volume 1, which is pretty pretty phenomenal, particularly the ending, or Jackie Brown. So, <laughs> look, this, this take, is... Take a drink. Think about this for a moment before you respond. Like I have never thought about this before. Like we've never even debated this before, right? This is just the first time we're doing it uh, uh, on record. Uh, I, one of the bonds I think you and I share with respect to Tarantino, because there are many, many different facets to how you either bond or you um, are divisive over Tarantino, because you can both as we do love Tarantino and fight like cats and dogs about Tarantino. <laughs> One of the bonds we have is that Jackie is severely underrated, severely yep. underrated. Another bond we have is that Inglorious was a masterpiece. I am not where you're at yet, but I am definitely on the train because these movies take time to wash over. You need to figure out relative to the other movies with history. How do these films stand up? Yep. I'm on the train that Hollywood is moving up the ranks. I'm not four yet, but I'm moving up. Are you in? Is it, is it top five for you or no? It's not there yet. It's not there yet, but it will be at some point. It will be at some point. Because I have not seen it as often as you. By the way, a, a, a station that only plays Hollywood is better than probably half the stations that are out there. Let's just <laughs> let's be honest about that. And you being a channel surfer does not surprise me because you probably also watch ads because you like the, the industry. Those who don't 
channel surf, don't appreciate good ads and don't appreciate the industry. But that's the error over there. Um, I don't think it is possible for me to move pulp from the number one spot. And, and the reason is that it changed the way I saw film. I was 16 when that came out. I, I had seen movies, but I didn't, I didn't know how to explore my own feelings, my own thoughts, um, my own viewpoints on movies the way I did until I saw that movie. And it opened up an appreciation for film that to this day burns bright and obviously brighter than it did at that moment, but it was the initial catalyst. And so based on its history, I don't think I can move it beyond the number one spot. I, I get fuzzy at two. Okay. So but you were you were gonna, you were just going to say something? Yes. Well, just just to close the, the the thread on on Pulp Fiction. So, and I'm not sure if I ever told you this, but my first job out of college, I worked for a, a PR firm, a celebrity PR firm, and we handled public relations for actors and actresses, big names like Julia Roberts was a client, Rob Reiner, people like that. And because of the job, I got my hands on various screenplays just based on films that our, our, our clients were in and whatnot. So I remember one of our interns came in and he's like, hey, I got the screenplay for Pulp Fiction. And I, at this point, this was probably 93. So I, I knew I knew who, I obviously knew who Tarantino was because dogs had already come out. So I, I was aware of this guy and I made a copy of it. And I was living in Connecticut at the time with my parents. So I was commuting as my first job. I had, you know making $5 a year. And I was taking Metro North back home. So I made my copy of the script and I read it, I read it on Metro North and long script, as you can imagine. And I was, when I read it, I, I couldn't fucking believe what I was reading. Like I, I was like, this is, it was literally a life changing moment for me as somebody who likes to write. When I read Pulp Fiction for the first time, I was just blown away by it. Like, this is a screenplay that halfway through this character, Vincent, who you played in our reading, gets killed. And, and I'm like, <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was reading. Like they just killed this guy. Like I love this guy. He just, I went to Jack rabbit slims with Vince and now he just gets shot. And I'm like, I, I was actually angry about it. And I'm like, I'm halfway through it. I'm pissed off yet. I kept reading. So anyway, I go home, you know, my weekend is boring weekend. I read it two more times over the weekend. And so from that point forward, this is early 93 and the movie didn't come out till I want to say like October 94. So it was a ways away. And I was telling everybody I knew that there's this movie that's coming out. It's called Pulp Fiction. It's Tarantino's second film. It is going to change everything. And I'm like, I can't. And they were just like, I've shut up, whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, just stop, stop. And I'm like, I can't stop. Like, you don't understand this screenplay is phenomenal and i'm like it's going like i so when it came out my brother and i saw it opening night obviously like i just i was on my i was on my radar from that point forward i just could not wait for this movie to come out and it delivered like it, it was it, to your point like it changed independent cinema but so that that's some of the the genius and rarity that not all scripts first off i have to agree i'm not going to compare all scripts to pulp but most scripts that are even good are are not brought to life in film to represent the writer's full vision and 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 it is so rare 
that the ability to combine that level script with that level filmmaking, uh, that it is the type of movie, whether it's not it for other people is fine, but it is for a lot of people, the movie that changed everything yep. that changed everything. And to your point on, on killing, you know, uh, a major character in the middle, it's certainly not the first movie to do it, but it seems like it was one of the most well-received, um, uh, non, I mean, I guess it was somewhat mafia oriented, but non straight mafia oriented movie, um, to do that. And, and shortly thereafter, I mean, a few years, but shortly thereafter you have, uh, Sopranos is a television show doing that. Game of Thrones is a television uh, show uh, doing that. And you start to look back over some of the biggest uh, cinema successes uh, over the last and most, well, not just from a dollar perspective, but from a uh, artistic and, and critical acclaim perspective. You, you, you go back and you start to see a theme that the writers wrote without fear. Yep. They, they wrote the character arcs for as long as they needed to be with the purposes that they needed to serve. And when those purposes were over, they were not fearful to release them of, of their duty. And that fearlessness in writing and the fact that audiences would not revolt, but would accept that fearlessness and would repay it with both uh, acclaim uh, and dollars spent on movie going is what ultimately birthed more writers being able to write in that capacity. And I do think that that is one of the reasons why it, it did change things, not just for individuals, but at an industry level. Well, listen, and that I that fearlessness is gone today, right? I would I would say, and I'm, I know I'm going to sound like a, a curmudgeon a little bit, but um, I'm grateful that um, I'm of the of the generation where I I was of, of that mid twenties age when movies like that came out. That really you could just sense that something was happening in Hollywood and the, and the change that took place. And there's not too many filmmakers that have come along since since Quentin that have I guess you know carried the torch after him, right? And he's still obviously carrying it, but. Um, there's not too many others that are, I think are making films today that are are taking those kinds of chances. And I want to, before we wrap, I want to throw some Wes Anderson at you. So <laughs> one of my favorite Wes Anderson movie scenes is from Rushmore. And it's, it's when um, Herman Bloom, uh, who is, who's played by Bill Murray is talking to Max Fisher, who's played by Jason Schwartzman. And, you know, Max is, is sitting outside Herman's car and it's a very quick exchange. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret? I don't know. I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to rush more. <laughs> Lance, here's what I would ask you. What's the secret? Hmm. Uh, you know... I, I feel like I can talk about anything and, and cobble together uh, perspectives on, on just about any topic. And then when you ask a question seemingly as simple as that, I don't have an answer. It's a great right? question to end the podcast with. Come on. It's, it's a sensational question. And I, and I think back to a scene from a movie that I would still keep in my top five, uh, Goodwill Hunting. 
when Robin Williams is sitting with Matt Damon and they're having this real heart to heart moment where Robin Williams finally breaks through and um, kind of snaps him out of thinking that no one's caring for him and, uh, and that he truly is that special in some ways he is in some ways he's not when they're talking about what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel, et cetera. And, you know, he, he ultimately ends up asking the question, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You got answers for everything. And I ask you one simple question and you cannot give me an answer. Exactly. And I think, I think that's one of the things that I've always, and I said it to open up this podcast. One of the things I've always admired about you it's the clarity in which you seem to live, the calling that seems to drive you on a consistent macro basis. For me, I find those callings in moments, in moments uh, when there's an opportunity to bond with someone, when there is a special experience that just happens and you're sharing it with someone like video village that you just did not know was going to happen. But it is one of the areas I have struggled with most on a consistent basis, as you can tell by saying yes to five careers and having two more that were, I was willing to accept that I, while I've loved what I've done and I have felt move to the point of calling it a calling. You said it yourself. If it is not necessarily the path I would have chosen for myself because I don't have the type of clarity on what I I can't say that I just want to go to Rushmore. I can't say it. The first time I felt something like that was when I had my daughter and I felt the calling that this is permanent. This is permanent in nature. I have a purpose but when it came to my my identity, I always had a mother who told me, "I you could be anything." Well, that is that is heavy weight to put on a little kid. <laughs> anything? What are you really? No, you can't be anything. And in fact, it's actually really good to help help a kid focus, help them find their calling. And through conversations like this and through spending time with people and especially people like, and especially you, Dennis, I feel like I am living my calling. And I hope one day that that becomes um, more defined than just connecting with people. You know, I, 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 I felt like I knew what my Rushmore was for m- many, many years. And to your point, I had that clarity. And I think in full transparency of, you know, the events over the last several years of my life, both personally and, and professionally, made me question it a little bit in terms of, you know, the the hurdles that you're you're thrown and the, the massive change that the industry is, is experiencing right now. And it's certainly not the same as it was. I mean, for sure. And um and I and I think you know, part of me, the, the reason why I'm doing this podcast and it, it's, it's, it's scratching an itch that other things that I do in my life aren't, aren't scratching. 
Do you, I, I, I gotta ask you a, a question. Do you see non-actual movie, movie scenes in your mind? I just mean like when all of a sudden you're thinking, do you ever create actual movie scenes in your mind? I do. I do from time to time. Um, sometimes things that happen to me, I kind of feel like it's completely in a movie, like the urgency of something. The computer just crashes and we're having, a, I think we're having a moment this, this whole time. We're having a moment inside a moment. It's like inception inside a moment, inside a moment. Um, and the computer is, is crashing. And I, in my mind, I'm dropping to my knees. The, the, <laughs> the camera, the camera's directly above me. I'm looking to the sky. Rain is pouring down and I'm like, no, you know what, you know what that, that, um, uh, break, uh, in the action though, did afford me, uh, it afforded me the opportunity to, uh, play conversational judo and once again, retake the question asking seat and put you in the hot seat because I don't want to finish before I get a chance to ask a, a couple a couple questions of you. Uh, one of which will make this will make this easy. Um, the Capitals play the Yankees who play the Cowboys in the Super Series Cup. Who do you root for? Oh my God. You know, it's funny. Um, I had a, uh, I'm looking at the very few amount of notes that I had that I, I, you know, prepared for this podcast. And I had a section called What's Wrong with Us? <laughs> that's, and, like, that's many yeah, episodes. Yeah, it was, was going to be a sequence. And we ended yeah. up like touching on some of the other things. So I didn't go to it. But like, it was this idea of like, what's wrong with us? And the very first bullet was, we are we are respectively Dallas Cowboys and Chicago Bears fans. That, <laughs> so let's just start at the beginning. Let's just start there. I think it's hard for me to answer that. I think there are certain times in my life I would probably have different answers. I mean, listen, I've got I've got all three teams represented in ink on on my body. So I've got the Capitals logo. I've got Marion Rivera's forty two on my arm, and I've got the Dallas Cowboys star on my arm. So that's not helping me answer this question. It's been half my life since the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. That's a sorry yeah, statement, but well, I, you know, it's over half half my life for for me in the Bears. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like you know, the Capitals won the Cup a couple of years ago, which was phenomenal, and I was living in DC at the time, so that was awesome. The Yankees went on their run several times when I was a kid in the seventies, and obviously in the nineties. But the Cowboys had my moment in 92, 93, 95, but it was just forever ago. And I think because of the pain and the suffering that I've endured over the last half of my life, I got to go to the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> all right. That's, uh, that's not unexpected at all. I, I actually put Capitals as a distant third and thought it would be the Yankees battling with the uh, Cowboys. And I did think you were going to net out on the Cowboys, but if you would have asked me to – bet a lot on it. I, I would have been torn. Uh, athletes have careers uh, and they have peak parts of their careers and oftentimes have a discernible best season. Doesn't have to be 
just career oriented. It could be, in fact, I'd prefer if it was life oriented. What to date has been Dennis Kamlik's best season? I love this question. This is why you're on the podcast, Lance. <laughs> What's interesting is that my best season happened to me professionally while it was probably one of the lowest points of my life personally. So there you go. But I got to say that was in 2018, which happens to be the year that the Caps won it all, by the way. <laughs> Didn't hurt. It was when I worked on the campaign for Free Solo. It, and trust me, it was a long season. I would guess that my team and I worked on that for, I want to say, 18 months. Um, and from the moment we watched the rough cut with the filmmakers, uh, Chai and Jimmy, we knew what we had. It was special. I knew it right away as soon as the lights went back up. And I remember asking them, what does success look like for this campaign? Because, you know, I'm a strategy guy. And I remember they said, we want to win the Oscar. Talk about a KPI. So we set forth on that goal. Uh, but just an amazing experience. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to get into all of it now, but working with so many talented people, it was just a ton of collaboration and hard work. And I think we all sort of knew deep down that we had a very good chance of winning the Oscar. Obviously, anything can happen, and the Academy is a tricky thing, but we knew. And uh, for me, it, it was just a very specific moment in time for me. I knew it while it was happening, and uh, honestly, it's a moment I'm not sure I'll ever capture again. Uh, that's That last sentence, that last sentence is a thread I would love nothing more than to pull on, because obviously... Uh, Athletes have physical limitations to their ability to keep up at the level of play to sustain their best season or continue to recreate their best season. But that is not the case when it comes to mental capacity, typically. I know it requires energy, but I am absolutely curious as to why you think your best season may never come again. But I don't know if we uh, if we need to go that, that far into the rabbit hole. Look, you mentioned... Uh how much I'm similar to Crash Davis from Bull Durham. You mentioned that earlier, and I completely agree. And he's a perfect example, you know, a guy that's been bouncing around and has had a lot of success, and he's at a certain part of his career. And I think that's where I'm at. I certainly think I have many more great seasons ahead of me, but there's a lot of them that are behind me. And what I've noticed over this past year, all the significant change that this industry, particularly my field, has, has undergone, much of it, um, caused by COVID and the acceleration of that just makes you wonder. And I've seen this happen with other people that are, that are in similar situations and it's impacted their careers. And it just makes you wonder um, how many of those great seasons you have left. I'm enormously proud of, particularly of the last 10 years in my time, both at Turner and National Geographic, I'm really proud of the work that I did there. But uh, given the changes and the uncertainty that seems to loom over the entertainment and media industry to an extent, just makes you wonder sometimes how many of those great seasons you have left. I mean, it's possible that it doesn't happen specifically in the industry that you were in, but is the calling you experienced to move into this industry that for a lifetime? Or does that, like Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction, have its arc that can end before the movie is over? And therefore, getting into another character for the rest of the film. And I think like you, and I would have to put some serious thought behind it, could come up with some other careers for you that you would you would be quite a darling at. And 
you know, God willing, we and everyone listening lives long lives, but we know it's finite. But even if you get, you know, 10, 15 more, ideally it's 50, 60 more, but you could have, you could have two, three careers in that time period if you wanted to. It's funny. My buddy, Chris Spencer, who I worked with at National Geographic, he uh, ran creative there and he still does. Great guy. Love him. And I got to get him on this show. But I remember once he told me, he's like, you're far more creative than you think you are. You really are a creative. And I think deep down, I have to agree. And I feel like this industry isn't as creative as it used to be, which is weird because it's a creative industry. It's entertainment. But um, this emphasis on on science and data and tech, which is completely understandable, sort of feels like it's just taken creative creative thinking out of the equation sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I guess that's why I gravitate towards things like uh, Video Village, which is the screenplay series you referenced earlier, and how much we all love that. And, and this podcast, uh, the main reason I'm doing this podcast is I just miss building something. And I felt the same way when I did my TV pilot several years ago. I needed to create something. And the podcast has been an enormously satisfying experience in terms of you know, not only just thinking about the topics I want to talk about and securing the guests and doing the research and getting my questions prepared, doing the interview, doing the editing, post-production, marketing the episode, all those things just sort of help me scratch that itch that I still have. And, uh, and you know, I'll continue to do it, but I just hope that there's elements in this industry in the future that will allow me to continue to harness my creative instincts. D- Dennis, we just talked about a, a profession that is no longer re- regarded in the same way. There are others, journalist, teacher, philosopher. That was all the rage. I mean, a long time ago, but, but can you, I mean, there are still people who do it because of it's just who they are. But can you imagine if someone walked into a room and hand you a business card and it just said philosopher, right? <laughs> or I don't know of many, many companies that are hiring philosophers right now. But you combine those three things, philosopher, teacher, journalist. You know what they're called today? They're called podcasters, right? Uh, This is similar to what humans have both desired, coveted, and put on a pedestal for a long, long time. And we've gotten back to the point where if you've got a small soapbox and a small town square of 25, 50 people, you could be really important to those 25 or 50 people. You can feel like you are making an impression on how they think and they are making an impression on how you think. And that evolution is what we seek by DNA and human nature and in our mental capacity. And so to have this ability to philosophize and teach, and uh, I don't think we did much journalism here, but you know, there's, there's some element of that. Um, to have that so accessible today is beautiful. And the fact that you asked me to partake in, in that town square with you today um, is just yet another reason why I adore our friendship. I feel the same. It's been my privilege to have you on. You are truly one of my favorite people. 
you make me laugh, you make me think, you challenge me, just like you did in this podcast, like I knew you would. You're one of the very few people in my life that I have that kind of relationship with, and I know I am all the better for it. And I think we all are. This is going to sound stupid and corny, but the world is a better place with you, Lance. Those that know you absolutely will agree. And I think something tells me that this episode is probably just part one of a larger conversation. <laughs> I hope. I don't even think we've finished uh, the topics that we said that we would. But thanks, Lance. Thanks for joining me today. I enjoyed every minute of this. I love you, DC. I appreciate you having me on, man. And I, the feelings are definitely mutual. I love you too, brother. Thank you. And everybody, thanks for listening. I'll be back soon.